Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I want to take just a few moments and take a look at two possible miracle stories uh, that are, I think, highly evidential and worth your time to consider. We so often hear from skeptics that miracles just don't happen. And every single time we hear of something that we think is supernatural, there's always a naturalistic explanation. Well, here's a couple we're going to look at today that I think are pretty powerful, and I want to share them with you. Um, so uh, recently, Lee Strobel came out with a new book called The Case for Miracles, and both of these stories are documented in it. I actually hadn't read The Case for Miracles. I know Lee Strobel, or let's say I've spent a fair amount of time with him, sat at the table with him a few times, uh, spoken at it with him at conferences. And uh, there's an interesting story about my uh, interactions with Lee Strobel that you can hear on S.J. Thomason's uh, interview with me on her channel. But uh, I know him uh, to a certain degree and uh, know uh, Mark Middleberg, who's kind of of his partner in ministry uh, even more than I do him. So, uh, But despite all of that, I hadn't read this book, and it's a phenomenal book. But when I was on S.J. Thomason's podcast, a friend of one of the individuals that we're going to look at uh, here in just a few moments uh, that, that experienced a miracle in her life, uh, that friend reached out to me. She said, I saw you on S.J. Thomason's channel, uh, enjoyed that. I just wanted you to know that I'm friends with this person, and I really think you ought to take a look into this. So I did. I took a look into it. In fact, as we speak right now, I told her I was going to do a show, and she's emailing this person to, to, to get some more information for me because I found a particular interest in this. Uh, so we're going to take a look at two of these. Um, but the first one that we're going to look at is a little bit interesting. This is an, an amazing story. I'm going to set it up for you just a little bit here. Uh, this is the story of a man named Dwayne Miller. Uh, this is, has to do with a healing that is of a very specific sort that kind of hits home with me. Maybe that's why I find it particularly interesting. And I'll tell you why in just a few moments after I share the miracle with you. So uh, this that I'm about to read to you is from Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Miracles, as it sets up the story of Dwayne Miller. It says, Dwayne Miller's greatest enjoyment came from preaching at his small church and singing songs of worship. It wasn't just his livelihood to lead a Baptist congregation in Burnham, Texas, or Brenham, Texas. It was his passion, his calling, and his source of joy and satisfaction. When he awoke with the flu one Sunday morning, his throat was like sandpaper, and his voice would catch on words. Each syllable was painful to speak. The flu soon disappeared, but his windpipe remained ablaze and his voice reduced to a raspy whisper. His throat felt constricted as if someone were choking him. For all practical purposes, Miller's voice was gone, no longer able to preach. He resigned from his pastorate. He eventually landed a government job researching records, a position he then lost because his inability to speak meant he couldn't testify in court about his findings. Insurance stopped covering his treatments, and he faced thousands of dollars in medical bills. For the first time in my life, he says, I felt utterly useless. My income, my future, my health, my sense of well-being, all were suddenly beyond my control. It was a terrifying and humbling experience. Over three years, he was examined by 63 physicians. So this went on for years. This, was a, this is a long-standing problem in his life now. His voice is just gone. His case was even scrutinized by a Swiss symposium of the world's leading throat specialists. The diagnosis? The flu virus destroyed the nerves of his vocal cords, rendering them limp. When Miller asked about his prognosis for recovery, a doctor told him zero. Despite Miller's protestations, his former Sunday school class at First Baptist Church of Houston prevailed on him to speak. 
A special microphone was used to amplify Miller's soft, hoarse, croaky voice, and the class agreed to endure the grating sound because of their love for him and his teaching. All right, now here's what we're going to do. At this point, we actually have audio of that Sunday school class. Uh, and I'm going to play it for you right now. It'll take just a few moments, but I want you to listen to his voice and think about the context in which this is taking place, um, that he's talking about texts that have to do with healing. So listen to what Dwayne, what happened to Dwayne Miller right here and now. So when the psalmist writes, and he heals all of my diseases, let me say to you that I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now, you have to be careful on how you do this because there are folks who carry things to an excess and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does, but I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me. And let it be. Okay, now we're about to we're about to continue this, but I want you to notice his own shock at what happens and how this. I mean, this you, you, he'd have to be a Hollywood actor to nail this. The the surprise he seems to have at what begins to happen. To say that every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of Scripture. Not true. Won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry. That's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of Scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So... The psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And in verse 4, he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now, I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had, and you have had in times past, pit experiences. We've both had We've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. I'm, uh, (laughs) 
sounds funny to say at a loss for words. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I. He redeems my life from the pit. <laughs> and crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Okay, he goes on like this for a little while, and I encourage you to watch the video. I'll link it in the description. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, obviously, what we have here is the recording. But uh, it, he, he actually, we have more data in the Case for Miracles book where he talks a little bit more, uh, or we find out a little more information about this. Um, it tells us that he says that in this Sunday school class, when he was reading and he was talking about how God doesn't always heal everyone, he said he was thinking in his head, yeah, but why you've healed some people. Why not me? You know, <laughs> like this. So this is in a context even of doubt in his own life, it seems to be. And um, when this happens, it says as soon as he said the word pit, the choking sensation disappeared. Now, for the first time in three years, I could breathe freely, he recalled. I heard a gasp from the crowd, and that's when I, too, realized my voice had come back. I could hear myself. His stunned audience began to clap and cheer, shout and laugh. His wife, Joylene, broke down in tears. I don't understand this right now. We, we heard him say that. Um, I don't understand this right now, Miller stammered with a fresh new voice. The dramatic moment of Miller's recovery had been captured on audio tape, which went viral. Subsequent doctor's examinations showed his throat looks like it never had any problems. In fact, against all odds, even the scar tissue had disappeared. Said one physician, even if I could explain how you got your voice back by coincidence, which I can't, I could never explain what happened to the scar tissue, end quote. Today, Miller is pastor of Pinnacle Church, serving the Cedar Creek Lake area of Texas. Ironically, he also hosts a daily program on Dallas radio station. Yes, using his voice to tell others about the God who uh, he is convinced still performs miracles. So um, this, this is an amazing miracle, I think. Why is it interesting to me? Well, obviously, it's interesting to me because... It's highly evidential. I mean, we have this happening on audio. In fact, I tried to look up and see what atheists were saying about this. And um, I found a thread somewhere where some people were, ah, you could fake that. People can fake that with their voice. You know, okay, maybe they could fake that. But uh, just buy Strobel's book, look into this, uh, the story yourself. This was a longstanding problem. This had been going on for years. People knew about this. This isn't something that was trumped up for this particular situation. Uh, I know what this is like because I personally have lost my voice multiple times throughout my preaching ministry. Uh, some of you may not know that from 2006 until really a couple of years ago, I was preaching regularly, like uh, sometimes as much as 40 weeks in a year, just every week and, you know, most nights of the week and twice on Sunday or sometimes three or four times on Sunday. And uh, one on one occasion, I remember speaking 30 something times in five days. So, um, so I've, I've lost my voice. And uh, when you lose your voice, it is so stressful and so frustrating as a public speaker, because 
you know, people that have not experienced this don't understand. They think, well, just, you know, gargle some salt water. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, gargle some salt water. You'll be fine. And, uh, and, and they don't realize like, no, I understand my voice and I understand that I'm going to get up on that stage tonight and it's, it's going to sound like this. You know, it's going to sound like the guy did at the beginning of the video before the healing occurred. And so I know exactly what that is like. And it doesn't just come back like that. But on at least one occasion, I have had it just come back in a moment of intense prayer that it would come back that way. So, um, you know, it's interesting. But what I want you to see here is not just the voice coming back, but the doctor saying that even the scar tissue was just gone. Um, sometimes I hear atheists say, okay, well, if this is all real, why doesn't God grow back limbs or whatever? Well, first of all, this is basically to say, I don't care what incredible evidence you do have. Uh, I want you to show me this specific type of evidence that I'm asking you for before I'll believe. Uh, the fact, if we did, if we did have uh, limbs growing back, and perhaps we do, I don't know, but if we did have limbs growing back, that would be uh, additional evidence on top of the evidence that we currently have, but we still have incredible evidence right now. But when you talk about scar tissue being removed, and we're going to hear something even more incredible in just a few moments that is very much in the vein of limbs growing back, not limbs growing back, but similar to that, um, uh, the same sort of thing as that. So uh, I think you have what you want here, but I mean, I just think this is powerful stuff. And, you know, people could, people could be skeptical. But at this moment, I wanted to open with a miracle, but then I wanted to talk a little bit about miracles and uh, the possibility of miracles for just a few moments in uh, a little bit more of an uh, explanatory way. So um, people have often said, well, look, a miracle is by definition the least likely thing to occur. So even in a case like this guy, it, we could probably dream up some sort of an explanation that would not be, you know, uh, would not have, say, explanatory scope or power, and it would be ad hoc and all those kind of things, but at least it would be a naturalistic explanation. And any naturalistic explanation is to be preferred to a miracle claim because a miracle, by definition, is the least likely thing to occur. So you can never conclude a miracle, even if a miracle really did happen. Well, lots of people have talked about that, uh, but let me just put it to you a couple of ways. First of all, um, if any of the uh, theistic arguments, by which I mean arguments that God does ex exist, not atheistic arguments, theistic arguments. So uh, there are several like that. I think that the Kalam cosmological argument is uh, as close to a slam dunk, if not a slam dunk, as uh, anyone could imagine. I mean, the, the, the Kalam cosmological argument, um, the design argument's really good, uh, the, the moral argument, the ontological argument, and we have several really good contingency arguments. Honestly, I've said this before, and this is not just chest thumping. I've defended uh, at least three of these arguments uh, in videos on this channel. Look, um, if you don't believe that there's a God, or at least think it is really reasonable to conclude that there's a God on the basis of things like the Kalam cosmological argument or the design argument, um, I just don't think you understood the arguments or there's something else going on there. Because if you understood those arguments, it's extremely powerful. But then on top of that, you have this incredible intuitive power that, uh, look, I, and by the way, this is going to connect back to miracles in a minute. But you have this incredible intuition that you could just look at your hands and just think about. I've said this before that, that it's just a little too perfect, isn't it? I mean, it's the, your consciousness that we don't even understand, um, your, your ability to, to, to use your hands to grip things, your mouth to eat and to 
to talk and to breathe. And it just all works a little too. Sexual interactions, it's all just a little suspiciously too perfect. Now, uh, I, I'm not naive to the response that you get when you say that sort of thing. I'm, I'm very much aware that people will say, yeah, but you got to understand that's the thing about um, the world in which we live. Those common sense explanations often lead you astray and you can't really always trust your intuitions. And after all, they're are really bizarre things like at the quantum level things don't seem to follow classical physics and you know at the Planck time at the beginning of the universe you, you, you can't go past Planck time everything starts acting weird and time gets weird and all these kind of listen I know all that stuff I've responded to all of those criticisms I get it I'm not naive to those things I've looked at them a lot but at the same time, I'm asking you to sometimes there is this principle that I think is good. And I, I think theologians should do this. I think Bible scholars should do this. And I think atheists should do this. And that is occasionally when you're thinking that way, push yourself back from the desk and ask yourself, am I just saying a bunch of bull? Because the fact of the matter is, and I'm not speaking about any particular person. I do this to myself, so I'm not criticizing you. But every now and then you just got to think, yeah, but what do I, what is actually probably going on here? And when you do that and you look at how suspiciously precise everything is, there's something powerful there to the degree that if someone just, if someone says to me, if someone will not even admit that th there is the seemingness of design, which most atheists will admit, like I see that you, that you, how you get there at least, if they won't even admit that, then I'm not sure we can have a conversation because I'm not sure you're being all that honest with yourself. Okay, because it, it is it is incredibly powerful that um, that impression. But the theistic arguments get you there, even if you don't buy that. You can go as deep as you want to. Uh, it, it is simple enough that a child can understand it. it is profound enough that scholars can uh, wrestle with it. But there is incredible evidence for for God as the creator of the universe. Now, if God serves as the creator of the universe, then we already have one miracle. Right? We have at least one miracle already occurring, which opens up the door for more miracles to possibly occur. It means that they're now in the realm of possibility. So if you already believe in God, or if, if, you, if these arguments demonstrate that there is a God, or that there is reasonable to conclude that there is a God, or something in that vein, then miracles are not off the table. Just because you happen to have bought into the uh, cultural narrative that you've been given, because you happen to live in a neighborhood in the West, um, in the you know toward the beginning of the 21st century, where science uh, empiricism is all the rage, um, you know. But if if we can believe in God, then miracles are very much on the table. Okay. Um, now, what if you say, well, I'm not totally convinced that there's a God. I, I don't know exactly. Okay. Well, then cumulatively, when you see incredible miracle evidence and you have that together, those things uh, kind of serve as a cumulative force to demonstrate the truth of the supernatural and God's existence. But secondly, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what we mean by miracle. Some people will describe a miracle as a violation by God of the natural order of nature. I disagree with that terminology because implied in it sometimes is th that uh, a miracle is like God doing something that's impossible. Now, um, there's a bit of an equivocation on what we mean by impossible. So on the one hand, if a person means by impossible, logically contradictory, then no, we don't believe God does the impossible if we mean God does the logically contradictory because log logically contradictory things cannot be the case. Um, God doesn't make square circles and he doesn't make married bachelors because those aren't things. It's not that those are things God can't do. It's that those aren't things to begin with. That's nonsense talk. 
Okay, so, but now if someone, I'm not going to correct a lady in church or a man in church if they say, well, look, my God can make the impossible possible because I know what they mean. They're using a different uh, sense of the word impossible. Things that would normally not happen, God can do them, right? It's evidence that God steps in. So, uh, so but, but, but if we're going to be speak very clinically here, the impossible as a logical contradiction, I don't believe that God does that. So I don't think that miracles are God doing things that are logically impossible or logically contradictory. What, what I think is a better way, instead of a violation of nature, uh, God doesn't violate nature because God owns nature. Like nature is his, as long, you know, as, along with everything else. So it's an intervention into nature. That's the terminology that Alvin Plantinga uses, and I like it. It's an intervention. And we actually understand that happening all the time when it's not miraculous with human beings. I, I you know, as far as my physical body, I'm a natural, I have a natural physical body. This is natural air, and this is a natural U2 coffee mug. If I were to drop this natural U2 coffee mug, I could intervene with the normal order of things. The normal order of things would be that that coffee cup falls and breaks on the ground. Uh, I can intervene. I can, I'm not violating anything, but I can intervene by sticking out my hand and catching that coffee cup and probably get coffee all over me, but I've intervened in what would have been the natural order of things. Now, that's not a miracle because I'm a natural entity, or at least my physical body is, sticking my natural hand out into the natural air and catching the natural uh, U2 coffee mug, right? I'm naturally doing all of those things. On the other hand, when God intervenes in nature and stops something that, pro that would not have happened uh, according to natural physics, he's intervening in that same, in a similar way, a, an analogous way. The difference is that he is supernatural. He is spirit and he is beyond the physical universe. And so when he steps in, it is a miracle. It is miraculous. So I want to get those uh, those uh, sort of definitional things down. And here's why. So whenever, say, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand or someone's he heals the blind or something, if we could have seen that to the degree that, you know, microscopically or something or smaller than that, what we, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw when he was healing the man, uh, blood cells rushing around and perhaps stem cells uh, going to the right place or whatever that happens there. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw these physiological changes happening. After all, we see the macro physiological thing happening of the eyes being healed or the hand being healed. I don't think there's any problem imagining that what's happened there is not a violation, but an intervention by God into his world. So these are interesting things that I think we need to point out. With that, I want us to move on now from Dwayne Miller to another case. This is the case. Uh, in fact, I'm going to let Lee Strobel explain this himself, um, and you can hear... Uh, what he has to say about this. By the way, this is fantastic. He got this from Craig Keener, who did the massive work on miracles. But for some reason, Craig Keener, in my opinion, screwed up if he didn't put this in the miracles book, because this is amazing. So uh, as we start here, Strobel is talking about uh, what he would say to um, uh, Jeffrey Coyne, Jeffrey or Jerry Coyne, whatever, I think it's Jeffrey Coyne. Um, if Jeffrey Coyne challenges him on miracles, he says, first I would give him the resurrection stuff, and then he says this. But you know what else I would do? I would challenge him on the standard he set for miracles and say, what if I introduced you to someone whose miracle meets your standard? That is where we have massive, well-documented, and independently corroborated evidence from multiple and reliable sources. What if, what if I introduced him to a woman named Barbara Snyder? 
Let me tell you about Barbara Snyder. She is the most fascinating case I discovered during my two-year investigation. Her, it just blew my mind. Her case is the most thoroughly documented of any that I encountered. I interviewed Barbara at length. There are years and years of massive scientific and medical evidence of her case, including from the Mayo Clinic. We have multiple credible eyewitnesses with no motive to deceive uh, or to lie. We have two physicians who were so astounded by what happened to her, they wrote books about it. In fact, one of her, one of her physicians was an atheist, and he looked at her and he said, Barbara, this is a miracle. And then he walked out of the room. I don't think he knew what to do with it. But let me tell you Barbara's story, and then I want you to hear her words from her. Barbara was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the Mayo Clinic. After years of deterioration and repeated hospitalizations and surgeries, she was in hospice in bed at her home. In other words, she was dying. One of her physicians, Dr. Harold P. Adolph, who was a board-certified surgeon who performed 25,000 operations in his career. He called Barbara, quote, one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. Hopelessly ill, he said. One of her lungs was non-functional. The other lung was just 50% inflated. A, trache a tracheostomy tube was inserted into her neck, and oxygen was being pumped from her garage so she could breathe. She had lost um, control of her urination and her bowels. She had a tube in her stomach so she could be fed. She was legally blind. She'd lost her eyesight. All she could see was shadows, gray shadows. Um, she had not walked in seven years, and so her, her, her legs had atrophied till they were just sticks. Her hands were permanently curled. Her fingers were virtually touching her wrists, and her toes, her feet were permanently extended. And her parents and the doctors agreed there was nothing more they could do medically. She was in hospice. She was going to die. They said the next time she contracts pneumonia, let's not try to save her because it's just going to postpone her inevitable death. Then one day, a friend of hers called up WMBI, which is the Christian radio station in Chicago. She lived in suburban Chicago and told her and said, my friend Barbara's dying. And could you just let people know on the radio that to, to pray for her? And so we know that at least 450 people began praying for Barbara because they wrote letters affirming that they were praying for her. Okay, now I know this is a long clip that I'm playing here, but I want you to hear it. I want you to notice a couple of things that are similar in the last case and this case. Um, in the last case, what we had was well, in both cases, you have a religiously informed theater. You may recall me bringing this up if you saw my video responding to Paulogia about the resurrection. And that is that with the resurrection, you know, you have this religiously informed theater where Jesus was claiming to be God's special eschatological agent. And uh, so there were all these religious trappings around the event. Similarly to the resurrection, here what we have in the case of Dwayne Miller, he was actually leading a Sunday school class. Uh, this Number one, it's very rare that he would be in a position where a microphone, a special microphone, was shoved up into his face. This is, I mean, how you know, for years he's had this problem, and at this very moment where it could be recorded, it was recorded. Secondly, he's talking about uh, miraculous healings, and it's at that moment that this happens. 
it's, it's a religiously informed uh, theater is the way we put it. Uh, likewise here, we have over 400 people that we know are praying because they wrote into the radio station or whatever that we know are praying. So this is this at this very moment where this is about to occur, people are then praying that she will be miraculously healed. A large number of people like that. So let's hear what, uh, what Strobel says next. So what happened? I went to Barbara and I asked her to tell you what happened. So let's watch her describe what occurred next. June 7th, 1981, I'll never forget it. It was a day like any other day for me. That was one spent confined to bed, unable to breathe on my own, hooked up to machines, a tracheostomy tube in my neck, my arms curled up, my legs curled up. I lay there trapped inside my own body is really how it felt. I had two friends over. They came over all the time. They were from my church. My church family never forgot me. So while they were there, I still remember exactly what they were reading when all of a sudden um, I heard a booming, authoritative, loud voice over my shoulder over here say, my child, get up and walk. And there was nobody else in the room. And there was no one else in the room, and the door was over here. There were windows over this way. And instantly I knew it was God. But instantly I also knew that my friends didn't hear that. Hmm. which is kind of interesting, too. Yeah. Um, and I needed to share with them what I heard. Well, I had this tracheostomy tube in my neck. That's how I breathed. And I had hands that did not work. So my friends said whenever I looked agitated, they knew I wanted to talk. So they'd come and plug the hole in my neck. And I said, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but God just told me to get up and walk. And my friends got really quiet. <laughs> I know. But he really did tell me to get up and walk. Run, get my family. I want them to be here. And um, my friends all of a sudden jumped up. And while they jumped, so did I. I was so excited, I couldn't wait for anyone. And I literally jumped out of the bed. This, this is where you'd almost have to have known me to see how totally impossible that was. So this time, I remember reaching up and pulling my oxygen out. I remember that. And then I jumped toward the voice. My friends are over here, but I jumped towards the voice. And as I jumped up, the first thing I remember isn't what I would think I would remember, but I jumped out of the bed and I looked and I saw my feet. They were flat on the ground, just like everyone else's, which sounds normal, but not for me. I had foot drops so badly I couldn't even wear slippers on my feet. They were so curled. So when I jumped up to have feet flat, I was amazed and stood staring at my feet. And when I did that, I jumped like this, and then I saw my hands. And they were open, and they never opened. And so now they were open, and I stood staring at them, and then it dawned on me I could see me. That's what I would have thought I would have noticed first, was my vision, but I didn't. It I was noticed back, you could see. It was back, I was perfectly fine. And I stood staring again for a little while, just feeling what it felt like to look at and see me. And then I turned, and that's when we were like women. We all started jumping up and down, screaming and thanking the Lord. I remember I didn't understand anything, except where once I was real sick, I was well again. And it has to be God. That's all I knew.
Barbara's in bed, she hears a voice, my child, get up and walk. She jumps out of bed, she's instantly and totally healed. Her mother comes running into the room, drops to her knees and begins to feel her legs. Say, you have calves again. Her legs had atrophied because she hadn't walked in seven years and her muscles returned instantaneously. Uh, her father came in the room and hugged her and began waltzing with her around the room. And that night, her church, which is Wheaton Wesleyan Church in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, was holding... Now, now no, no, notice this. This is that night. So the same day of the healing, that night she goes to church. That, I think you could miss that. It's amazing. ...holding a service. And the pastor gets up and he says, does anybody have any announcements? <clears throat> and Barbara starts walking down the aisle. And all... <clears throat> All the church ever knew of Barbara was Barbara in a wheelchair no, and blind. And, and she's walking down the aisle and people just spontaneously began to shout and applaud and cheer. And they broke into songs said, amazing grace. I once was blind and now I see. And the next morning she went to one of her doctors, Dr. Thomas Marshall, an internist for 30 years. And when he saw her, his first thought was, oh, she must have died and this is a ghost. His response was, quote, this is medically impossible. Friends, God instantly and completely and astoundingly healed Barbara in one miraculous moment. Okay, so I didn't know anything about this story. And uh, the, the one, of the, one of her friends uh, saw my interview with S.J. Thomason and, and uh, Facebook messaged me and said, You've got to you've got to look into this story, and I'm so glad that I did. I, I want to tell you there's more to this. So first of all, what's already amazing is, like he said, the Mayo Clinic was in on this. There's all kinds of evidence. This is highly evidential. You've got stuff before and after, and you've got people all involved. And the doctors wrote books about it. It's amazing. So um, so anyway, uh, a couple of things that you might miss is not only did she have hands that were curled in that then were suddenly fine and feet the same way and she was blind and she could see but did you notice that what her mother noticed was that her calves were gone and now she had calf muscles suddenly again um and all of that is amazing so the next day he you know he said that the, the doctor she went in for a thing and the doctor you know was like she must be a ghost so a chest x-ray that afternoon showed her lungs were already perfectly normal with the collapsed lung completely expanded the intestine that had been vented to the abdominal wall was reconnected normally. She was eventually restored to complete health, Adolf said. That's one of her doctors. So now that's something very much like a regrown limb. So uh, if I understand this correctly, where they had, you know, where they had um, vented her intestine to the abdominal wall uh, has now gone back to normal and was restored. That's very strange. Uh, Barbara has now lived for 35 years with no recurrence of the illness. She sub subsequently married a minister and feels her calling in life is to serve others. So now I want you to, I want you to hear this. So uh, Strobel writes, My mind searched fruitlessly for naturalistic explanations. Could her recovery be written off as some sort of a natural re uh, remission? If so, why would it suddenly occur after so many years, right when hundreds of people were praying for her? See, that's the religiously informed theater. It's, it's amazing enough that this happened. But when it happened, right while we had over 400 people praying for her, 
Remissions typically take, he says, place over time. Certainly the placebo effect or misdiagnosis or fraud or coincidence or medical mistakes couldn't account for what happened. Besides, what about the mysterious voice telling her to get up and walk or the immediate muscle tone in her atrophied legs? or the instant and simultaneous healing of her eyesight, lungs, and so on, with so many witnesses of unquestioned integrity and expertise, plus a proliferation of corroborating documentation, her case seemed to meet even the high evidential bar typically set by skeptics. So the question is, what are you going to do with this case? If you don't believe miracles are possible, what are you going to do with this? Um, you know, it, it, you can, I've said this before. You can go into almost any uh, group of people where there's, let's say, 100 people or more, and I've done this many times, mostly in churches, but not always, and ask them, how many of you know someone who was miraculously healed in a way that the doctors were like, this has got to be a miracle, would you raise your hands? And usually at least half the crowd will raise their hands. So when I hear people talk about, now obviously those are not all highly evidential like this. We don't have the data on all of those. Uh, but it just so happens that occasionally we do have these highly evidential cases and it lends credibility to those that are not highly evidential that uh, perhaps many of those also were legitimate. So whenever someone says, well, these miracles don't occur today like they did in the Bible, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I, I don't understand that. Uh, it's, we do have cases like that. And most, uh, well, maybe not most, but at least half or a little under half of people that I've personally asked uh, by the raising of hands uh, are aware of them. So uh, you've got to ask yourself at some point. Right now, in fact, here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. If you're a skeptic listening, an atheist, an agnostic, would you just, because I know the typical thing, because I could do this from a Christian perspective which is to suddenly start thinking of, okay, well, dadgummit, if I'm pressed on this, what would I say about this case? How could I get out of this evidence that is being presented? Don't do it that way. Just this once, stop for a second. You can do that later, have fun. But right now, just stop for a minute and really consider this and think, is it, is this, does this not make it possible or more likely in my thinking, a more of an epistemological possibility that miracle healings like this do occur. And what's that say about the nature of reality? Is it all possible? Just stop and consider it for a moment. I know where your mind naturally wants to go because I'm the same as you and I could do that in reverse. But it's so helpful for us to always examine our own thinking about things and why we operate the way that we do. And we can have this almost after the fact confirmation bias where we look at stories and evidence like this and we instantly go to like the guys I found in the, in the, the skeptics thread saying, well, you know, somebody could fake the voice change or whatever. Okay, the, the evidence doesn't show that, but, but that, that, that's exactly where you go, which is how can I get out of this rather than what is the truth about this? Um, kind of helps you to understand your presuppositions and how they can be problematic. So I would encourage you to stop and think about this for a couple of days. Um, perhaps look into these experiences further and perhaps pray to the God that you do not believe in, as, off, as strange as that sounds, and ask him to, uh, if, that if he's real, to, to uh, guide you in your thinking on these things. And I think that you're going to find that uh, there are actually a lot more. You could pick up the book, The Case for Miracles, or you could pick up Craig Keener's book. I should say, and you could pick up Craig Keener's book um, on miracles if you want a really academic treatment of it um, and, and, and just see it for yourself. You know, it's interesting. 
the evidence that Jesus gave was the healings, right? That's how he glorified uh, himself uh, and, and showed who he was. So I would encourage you to uh, think about this, think this through. We have two amazing examples here of uh, things that I think are highly evidenced miracles, and they're both very, very moving. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope that it has prompted uh, some things in your in your thought life and uh uh, I, I hope that it helps you in some way. If you're a Christian, I, I hope that it encourages you not to think necessarily always according to the narrative that our culture uh, would like us to always adopt. I hope that it encourages you in your Christian faith. And listen, if you'd like to support what we're doing here and responding to skeptics and providing good evidence for the truth of Christianity, then you can uh, click in the top right-hand corner of the screen and it'll take you to patreon.com slash trinityradio. Or if you're just listening by audio, you can go to patreon.com slash trinityradio. Listen, we do have some needs. We're trying to get some software that we need uh, to make the show better. And um, I have friends who make fun of me that I'm still using iMovie to edit stuff. Uh, but, uh, but listen, I, I, need, I need support in that realm. So if you're willing to be a part of that, um, then uh, please help us out. We, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, listen, uh, I've got a new book that is coming out in just a couple of days called Letters from Ignorantia. Um, it is not apologetics. This is the first book I've written that is, has nothing to do with apologetics directly. This is um, about the Bible and uh, how is it that a nation of people uh, our nation, <laughs> or perhaps the West today, can come to believe that they uh, know a book that they seldom read. And how is it that we, perhaps we have become ignorantians? And that terminology will make more sense if you check out the book. Listen, I've enjoyed this time we've had together. Miracles are real. Um, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Trinity Radio.